Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Exactly a year ago, I was fortunate to head out into the Tasmanian mountain landscape up near Cradle Mountain with Rob Blakers, who I introduce in this podcast today. We went up there because the area had just been ravaged by wildfires and this is an area that was really never meant to see wildfire. When you walk through it, especially after it's been burnt, it's just little pools of water with these stags of dead pencil pines that have just been scorched. Running around up there with Rob was an amazing experience. I couldn't keep up with Rob for a start. He had this huge backpack on with all these camera camera equipment to take his photographs of what was going on and I had my little one trying to run along behind him in his sort of long gaping strides but there was at this one point when I'd gone off for a little bit of a walk exploring the area and I came across this unbelievably huge pencil pine and it had been burnt and it was no longer living and it had two feet sticking into this like gorgeous pool of water at the bottom and I All I could think of was Rob has to see this. And when he came up and he got his camera out and he was taking this photo of this tree, I stood back and I was watching him for a moment and he looked across and he gave me this look. And I can honestly still remember that look like it was yesterday. It was just this harrowed, haunted look. I guess what I'm trying to say is this guy, I don't really know Rob yet, not enough, not as much as I'd have loved to know him, but he's... He's mystical. He, he's like the father of our Tasmanian wilderness. He's known for his wilderness photography, but I get that he's driven by something so much deeper that he knows that he has to make his, his bit of difference to climate change and the protection of our planet that we enjoy and love and play in all the time. So you don't need to be a wilderness photographer nor if you want to be, you can be a climate change skeptic, but I still believe that you're going to get a lot out of this podcast as we delve deeper into really who Rob is, what he's driven by, and what he wants to leave when he leaves the planet. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I, I I know you, but I feel like I don't know you. There's to me, there's like a bit of a you've become a bit of a role model for me. And if it wasn't for your images and also the discussions that I've been able to have with you and a trip into the wilderness exactly a year ago, believe it or not, mm. that we had together, I don't think I would understand the significance of the Tasmanian wilderness and I think I probably speak for many people and I was doing a bit of homework obviously for the podcast today and one of the um, quotes that I came out from the Tasmanian Wilderness Society was you as a bit of an ally of the Tasmanian wilderness (laughs) I don't know if you've seen that one out there was it always your calling or your plan to to be a photographer and to work with the Tasmanian wilderness landscape yeah, no, not at all. Uh, so I grew up in Canberra and finished school and didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, so by default, uh, I had two 
my brother and a sister about me who'd <coughs> done zo- studied zoology at uni, pardon me. <coughs> and so I just followed in that footstep, all those footsteps. Uh, so I did four years of zoology. In retrospect, I can see what was happening. Uh, the fourth year of that was an honours year, and I ended up, again, not with a... Well, through, through being at uni, I'd uh, done a small amount of bushwalking and then fall into cross-country skiing, and that really became mm-hmm. my life and driving passion through uni. In my fourth year, I did a honours project up at Kosciuszko, where I was studying bogong moths, which are these gorgeous little brown moths, about <laughs> 2.5 centimetres long, which migrate from northern New South Wales and the inland areas of Queensland even all the way down to the Australian Alps you know thousands of kilometres and they do that it is thought to slow down the reproductive processes Mm. they then go to the Alps the high country where it's much cooler and they all fit into caves Uh, they they cram themselves interlock themselves into caves and rock crannies in the granite country around the tops in the alpine zone and because it's cooler their bodies don't mature as quickly and then at the end of summer they migrate all the way back to their breeding grounds. Just beautiful, beautiful little creatures. <laughs> so I fell in love with that. I'm not surprised. And, yeah, and also just spending that time, you know, repeating visits up to the high country was, you know, the best part of my whole, best part of that year and probably the best thing I did at uni. And it mm. just gave me that perspective on a changing landscape because I'd go back to the same place starting from midwinter uh, right through to the end of summer and just seeing the changes and interestingly going back in subsequent years um, you see every year is different the snow drifts lie differently into summer and the flowers come at different times I mean they all follow a broad pattern but it changes Mm. from year to year and having had that perspective of the one year visiting the place so much uh, it was just gave me the base to see the changes that happen so are you seeing the beauty in the changes or does your mind connect say with the curiosity of the science of the changes I think it's two of the same thing they're the same Uh, yeah I mean it's not so much the aesthetic beauty but just and it's not even beauty of the landscape but just you get a sense of the intrinsic identity of the landscape of the place uh, how and how it then manifests differently each year. Like it's just the flow of nature, it's the flow of mm. creation or whatever you want to use the term. Yeah, I felt when we were out together a year ago, we were walking up in the high country in an area that had been burnt, although there were some beautiful areas that hadn't yet sort of seen fire. And when we were walking together, you you just had this aura of appreciation. I wasn't exactly sure what it was that you were looking at, whether it was the shapes or the science or the whole visual beauty of it all. But what you're saying is that it is, it's all of it. It's all of it together. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's not, like it's visual and it's oral and it's, well, it's not taste, but, uh, you know, it's all the senses. Well, it could be. I mean, smelling scaparia flowers or whatever, you know, it can be all of those things, but it's more just the place and mm. the, the vibration of that place uh, I mean it sounds very esoteric to speak it's hard to find the right words um, but it's just the sense of that place and as humans we can pick up a sense of that place but mm. it is there regardless of us yeah. uh, the place is you know, a part of 
a much bigger entity. Yeah, well, I I connect to that. Uh, Graham and I often will be lying in bed at night, sort of trying to relax or you know getting ready to wind down and we often find ourselves saying oh you know remember that time we're on the shores of Lake St Clair and all the shooting stars that's going on right now and it's it's weird when you sort of transport yourself back to our urban environment you sort of forget that 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 is all still there going on as it is yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's really true so was through those um that period of time up in the Kosciuszko National Park, is that where the photography started to filter in? Were you using photography as part of your studies and did you have a gift or was it just something that you've worked on? Yeah, no, definitely the latter. And you're right also in what you said at the beginning. Uh, so I began taking photographs to document the thesis. Right. So uh, I was taking, taking some photographs of the moths where they were estivating and... Um, I had some live traps and I was catching some of the baramies, the mountain pygmy possum, mm-hmm. which is, you know, unique. Yeah, amazingly yeah. cute. And then just <laughs> trying to ascertain from their droppings whether they were feeding on the moths, which they were. Mm-hmm. And also you'd get towards the end of some of the build-ups of uh, ravens. I it must have been the foreign, no. Australian raven, yeah, Corvus coronoides, which build up in hun- flocks of hundreds and just hang out the outside, the edges of the cliffs and the, the rock crevices to feed on mm. the moths because the moths have, um, you know, stores of fat within their abdomen because they have to subsist right through the summer and then get themselves back to their breeding grounds. Yeah. And just to finish on the moths, the other amazing thing is that around the estivation sites, the sites where the moths congregate every clear calm evening they'd come out or a portion of them would come out and fly you know around the rocks Mm -hmm. and there's so many of them like it's just tens and hundreds of thousands it's like a motor going it's like this engine (laughs) and it just goes for about 20 minutes and then it subsides and they all crawl back in and what was the purpose of that no no one they're not feeding Uh, maybe they're just getting exercise Fresh air and sunshine. <laughs> Fresh air and sunshine. <laughs> evening, evening Moonlight, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you obviously then weren't born in Tasmania. As you said, you were born in Canberra. So where does the Tasmania element fit in? Was it, yeah, how, how did you end up here? So I was born in Melbourne but grew up in Canberra. And oh, then I came okay. down after I'd finished uni, straight after that degree, I came down for a three-week holiday and I was going to go cross-country skiing. I finished the course mid-year. Uh, but there was no snow down here. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, even then, although there was more snow, you know, going back 35 years or whatever it is. Um, but that year there was no snow when I came down, and so I'd done a little bit of work. I'd been to a couple of meetings with the Wilderness Society in Canberra. Mm-hmm. So I dropped into the office here in Hobart, and one thing led to another, and a three-week holiday was extended to become you know, a month, and then a month and a half, then three months then a year later I recognized oops I'm living here I'd moved here so it was uh, an inadvertent unconscious process of moving to Tassie <laughs> which is actually a really nice way to that's a beautiful way to yeah. end up in a place yeah. yeah it got under your skin I think I read somewhere that was it on this trip that you went to the Tarkine and were sort of standing out on the Norfolk Meredith Ranges and you'd also been exploring some of the river valleys and you just realised that this is where you had to be. Yeah, no, that was later. So I lived here. Um, 
that first year when I was just transitioning to being here uh, was the year before the Franklin Blockade. And so mm. that was what was engaging me. Like, I was incredibly incompetent as an activist and I'd never seen myself as an activist. But I, you know, walked into the place and, you know, walked in the next day and started... That was what I ended up doing. Um, working with a band of people almost all of who are, you know, in their early 20s, almost all of who are unemployed, um, but who were working, you know, 16-hour days towards building the framework of the Franklin Blockade and right. the other campaign parts. Extraordinary time. Um, mm. And we didn't realise, because we're all so young, we didn't realise that we're taking on, you know, the entire Tasmanian establishment, you know, all levels of politics were against us, the media was against us, um, a portion of the population was against us, but we just knew we were doing the right thing. Yeah. So So what was it like to be robbed sort of before that and then during that period of time? Like we what what was your character like? You're obviously quite you, you come across as being a quiet, thoughtful, generous person. You know, it has did that time change you, or yeah? Can you can you describe yourself back in those years? Um, pers- you know, in the outward personality, you know, the persona that I have, it probably hasn't changed that much. Like mm-hmm. I was shy. I was, as I said before, I was completely unprepared, and my mind was geared like I was applying for jobs in the public service. Wow. And thank God I didn't get one, <laughs> um, because it just shifted me around. I saw that. I guess. I had a fairly elitist sort of sense of myself. Um, I'd had a good education. Um, and I came down to Hobart, which at that time particularly, like Tasmania was a very different place even 40 years mm, ago. The culture of it, this is, you know, how society was, it's much more, it's much more down to earth. It's like, you know, your country bumpkins, you know, again. <laughs> that's not how it really is or even was, but that's how it... You know, it's it's not like, uh, and even now, it's not like the big cities in Australia no. or else overseas. No, you know, it's, it's a lot not. more down to earth, and mm. that's got you know positive aspects, and it's got not so positive aspects. But for me, that time when I walked into the Wilderness Society and I was working alongside people um, that I hadn't really engaged with before, and it was—it just turned me around. It turned me 180 degrees around wow. to seeing that you know, wherever people came from, whatever those people were, it's what you know. It's how you what how you what you do in your life that matters. And we were all, you know, a band of young people working on with very idealistic vision with a very idealistic vision, uh, doing what we knew was right, as I said. And, and that was a beautiful uh, space and engagement to fall into. Mm. So did you meet many role models or mentors or sort of people who actually took you under their wing and taught you the ropes? Because you said that you were quite naive as an activist at that time, that you are quite raw. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were sort of working with Bob Brown, so obviously <laughs> it's impossible that he couldn't have influenced all of us. Uh, just his extraordinary positivity, strategic intelligence, uh, empathy, vision, mm. intelligence. But 
in the gang there were many other people and several particularly who not so much took me under their wing but just in their own way showed me through how they were doing things mm-hmm. um, how you know I might look at doing things mm-hmm. and the incompetence that I talk about as an activist was just that I you know I could do things but I was just very slow uh, very slow at finding my own motivation but you know gradually that built and in the end I was running and it's interesting what I ended up doing in the Women's Society apart from being engaged in the blockade well two things I did but outside of the blockade work it was uh, mail order <laughs> and the photography collection <laughs> in practical terms, you know, I'm now part of uh, a shop at Wild Island at, at um, Salamanca. Yeah. And obviously photography has continued along as well. So it somehow sparked it. In yeah. The... Well, it's more that perhaps those are the things that I, that, you know, that was a, a gap in what, requ- what was required and it perfectly matched, you know, my practical interests. So in that, just that discussion that we just had you mentioned that you you had to go through a process of finding what was driving you what was motivating you what what did you find what became the drive for you well it's I recognize that for me my life it's I don't tend to set conscious specific explicit goals Mm -hmm. uh, more and increasingly I try to live to move towards a way of being, a way of living which is more intuitive. And so I, I look ahead more with how I want to do things rather than what I'm doing. <laughs> and so that's how it was there also, um, although it wasn't as conscious with the hindsight now and, you know, I guess being a bit older, just seeing things a bit more clearly now. Um, I just moved into what was in front of me and I took the next step and then the next step and then the next step and that worked it took me to places which I would never have envisaged going to and you know that those years particularly working with the other people for the Franklin blockade mm-hmm. were incredible you know, in practical sense probably the best thing I've ever done being part of that movement mm. So when the Franklin, the <laughs> that didn't come out right. <laughs> when the Franklin blockade ended and ended with a positive outcome, what was the emotions for you, and what did that then lead on for you after that finished? Yeah, it wasn't ecstasy. It wasn't you know, it wasn't. It was just a sense of having been involved in the right thing, mm-hmm. um, and I sort of moved in day-to-day work into a for, into the forest campaign right um which was sort of embryonic at that point um so this is what mid 80s early 80, you know, 83 83-ish um yeah without pretty seamlessly moved into campaigning for forests mm. and there was lots to be done well that's a never-ending task yeah, isn't it yeah yeah. yeah yeah so the zoology kind of started to take a bit of a back step yeah, yeah, and I recognise again looking back the science degree that I did. I mean, the honours year was fantastic, but the undergraduate part, you know, we were dissecting dogfish and different things like that, which isn't my cup of tea at all. <laughs> and I look back on that zoology degree, and yes, I did it perhaps because 
you know, I had an older brother and sister who'd done zoology, but also I think for me it was actually, it was a really good move, even though, mm. especially in the undergraduate years, I didn't, you know, I wasn't strongly motivated, um, but it, I was sort of within, I was moving, uh, albeit slowly, and at the heart of that was you know, a love of nature. Mm. So the inclination to study zoology was at least in part, you know, a partly misguided want to study nature because the way, again, you know, dissecting animals is not how I want to be studying nature. Well, it's so different to what you do now. Yeah. 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 So when you moved into the forest campaigns, was it still photography that started to kind of really come to the front of what you were doing? With the yeah, forest? and that was pretty where it did really start. Like during the Franklin campaign, I've, I've still I haven't been down the Franklin River. I went down a couple of the other rivers and was taking pictures as I went. Um, but the forest campaign, there was a crime. Well, I guess in the rivers campaign, we had Peter. Yeah, Peter I Dom, was going to so. ask about that. Yeah. Um, Did you meet Peter through that Franklin sort of years? Because he, he really was, it was his famous photograph of Rock Island Ben that became an integral part of saving the Franklin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so actually, and again, Know, it's sort of funny. I ended up for a couple of seasons helped Peter distribute his calendars. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, um, and I remember driving up to Launceston to deliver calendars, and I was thinking at the point at that time of doing a court photography course in Canberra, and um, I asked him, you know, Peter, do you reckon I should do this course in Canberra? And he said, oh, you know, you've got to work that out for yourself, mate. Oh, <laughs> Which is very much his way. <laughs> you know, he wasn't. He was very self-contained, right? Um, and he wasn't going to tell me what to do. You know, he, he, he knew that I, you know, consciously, unconsciously, that I needed to work it out for myself. Yeah. So in the end, I didn't do that course, and you know, I probably didn't need it because what, you know, at a technical level, I probably did need it, but in terms of direction and motivation and engagement with photography, by that at that point, I was strongly enough engaged yeah, that, that I was pretty. You know, moving into things and learning new things and exploring new places and new techniques and underpinning the photography was the reason for doing it in the first place which was to go out and get campaign images mm-hmm. So you, you really by then had set your purpose to wilderness protection in Tasmania? Again Intuitive, intuitively. Yeah, intuitively like yeah. it's not that I set a goal for myself on New Year's Day or anything no, like that. It no, was no. more that, yes, that's what I was doing. Yeah. And really almost selfishly because to not do that, just to go out and take photos in national parks and so on, especially at that time, just felt really boring and empty. And so mm. for a period of probably four or five years, I didn't go to any national parks. Um, mm. Again, at that point, there was much more of Tasmania, which wasn't a national park, which now is, but places like... You know, the entire length of the Weld was just fantastic country um, and none of it had was protected. It was all open for logging and we, uh, in those years after the Franklin, after the Franklin campaign, the uh, Wilton Society used to have monthly or weekly evening meetings, I can't remember what it was, but one of the, and, and invite guests along and one of the guests was a fellow called Brian Gibson who was the head of A&M one of the big logging companies at that time. And so we're all in this little room upstairs in the environment, in this little poky little room, and somebody asked him the question, 
uh, would you ever give up the concession over the World Valley? The system back then was uh, two or three big companies in Tasmania had concessions, like exclusive rights to the forests on vast areas of land, and the A&M concession was all the Florentine, uh, um, the weld, the sticks, um, out towards Butler's Gorge, which is huge, this whole central Tasmania area, magnificent forest. And he just sort of had these lovely bright eyes, and he just shook his head and said, no, wouldn't consider it, you know. And that was... You know, just a window into the corporate, you know, a corporate world back then. But now we look at the changes that have happened in 40 years and almost all of those areas. I mean, there's been much damage as well, but mo- the bulk of those areas are now either World Heritage or National Park. Mm. Um, do you th- and this isn't an ego question, I'm not sitting here plugging it, but was the work that you did and the likes of Dombrovskis and the Wilderness Society, do you think that they had an integral part in the fact that we now have Wilderness World Heritage Areas? Yeah, it does. There's no question. Photography, you know, alongside all of the other campaigning, really um, is necessary for helping convey the magnificence of these places mm. to people that can't or you know, can't get there or mm. don't get there. I find... That I mean, I have a love of language, I love writing, (laughs) but there's no words that really describe what you see when you're out there, and that especially hit me a year ago when we were seeing the the fires up in the Lake Mackenzie area in the Wilderness World Heritage to see it, you know, burnt pencil pines. There's no words to describe that, and when I actually was trying to do research on you, and actually, you're quite anonymous on on this, (laughs) there's very little information about you, Rob, but my gosh, there's so many photos they're everywhere your your images were in the Sydney Morning Herald and all the major newspapers when the fires were happening and before that obviously your images were used in forestry campaigns um so yeah you bring a window of insight into landscapes that you can't get through words or language Mm, I think visuals do do that but words also do um uh when was it a few months ago we had a a talk at um National Theatre about uh, wilderness, like it's an or- or talk organised by the Wilderness Society, and one of the speakers was Peter Hay, and when he was speaking, he was just talking about place in Tasmania and different places in Tasmania, and the way and how Tasmania is, you know, its vegetation, the extraordinary nature, and the beautiful character of Tasmania's vegetation and the shape of the mountains, and. As he was talking, which went for about 10, 10, 10 minutes, I was thinking we should be running a slideshow alongside this poetry um, because what he was evoking were all these aesthetic um, images and connections to the audience. And if you'd had a crafted slideshow, it just would have been quite, you know, trans. Absolutely. And I think imagery is starting to change the shape. I mean, globally, but especially in Tasmania, what's changing the tourism industry at the moment is just the increasing quality of imagery that's coming out about Tasmania, you know, seeing the sea cliffs on the Tasman Peninsula Mm. and, you know, sunset shots of Fresno National Park, Mm. Cradle Mountain when it's stormy. And I saw one this morning that was being used on the the national media of Mm. of Cradle Mountain Mm. under storms. And, you know, it, it is, it's changing every sphere. 
but I'm kind of curious to go back if it's okay to delve back in towards the forestry campaigning. I think there's a mixed understanding about whether old growth forestry is still going on in Tasmania. We've obviously seen a lot of the wood chip mills close here. What what can you what light can you shed on sorry, a negative topic at this point of the conversation? Um I mean the situation now is well setting aside Guy Barnett's plan to open up up four hundred thousand hectares which were set aside for a reservation in the the Tasmanian Forest Agreement a few years ago, setting that aside. So the ongoing logging now and where it is is really a product of that agreement because where the logging is happening now is where it was agreed to as part of a compromise process, which is what the TFA was. And that's mm-hmm. the critical and central understanding that needs to be had about the Tasmanian Forest Agreement. It was a compromise. It right. wasn't both sides or all sides getting what they want. It was mm-hmm. two implacable foes, you know, the forestry industry and environmentalists locking themselves in rooms over the course of a year and more, you know, battling it out and inch by inch coming to a point where they could both just touch hand, you know, touch hands you know, in the middle. Um, and both had forsaken, you know, many, both sides had forsaken, you know, many goals and Ideals to get to that point, but mm-hmm. it was a compromise. And so, where we are now, and the logging that's happening now, you know, I'd love to see this old growth happening, logging happening, and logging of forests of big old trees, which shouldn't be happening, in my view. So, it is very still clearly, happening. it's absolutely happening, but on a much less scale than it has in the last decades. And, but that was a, you know, I can live with it if the rest of the forest, if, as a compromise. Um, because you know we live in a, a very imperfect world, and to hope to achieve perfect a perfect forestry outcome in Tasmania is not realistic, uh, or it's not on par with you know the problems or the issues that you know are awash across the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unrealistic to expect to get a perfect forestry out or forest outcome yeah. where we've got you know the hideous things which are happening in all levels, yeah. uh, environmental, social. Yeah. You know, genocides and wars are happening left, right and centre across the world still. So you're saying that we have to kind of look at it in a global perspective. But the the old growth that is happening and even the forestry in general that is happening, is it still the wood chip industry that we're supporting or is it sort of more... Yeah, it is to a large degree. Right. Um, Wood chip exports are are slowly increasing again. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That said, you know, the forestry industry is uh, in many aspects you know, not a viable industry. It still gets supported by governments mm-hmm. um, and propped up, uh, which allows it to continue, um, whereas if it didn't have that support, it, it would be a much, much smaller entity. Mm. Very interesting, Rob. Thanks for shedding light on it because I've been wanting to ask someone those questions yeah. for a while. Yeah. So... If we go back into kind of your work, or not, I don't know, do you call it work? Is your, is your photography your job? Uh, well, yes and no, of course. Uh, it's not how I get up every morning and think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's aspects of it which are really boring and you have to make a living, basically. Or you don't have to, but I'm trying to make a living out of photography. Mm-hmm. And so there's aspects of that which 
you know, selling stuff, invoicing people, chasing debts, which I don't love at all, but no. it's part and parcel of uh, being self-employed. And uh, I've got a 19-year-old son who's looking around at what he, you know, where he wants to move to in his life, and mm. I just think how wonderful it is to be self-employed <laughs> that you can like I, I frequently work nights in terms of processing files or mm-hmm. doing the invoicing or whatever um, but then I can you know take days off where and when I need them or when the time is right you know the seasons or different things if I want to go out and take pictures you know I'll just set the time and go and do it and if you had a paid nine to five or just you know paid regular job you can't do that sort of thing to be able to work flexibly and it's just totally interwoven to anything that I'm doing in my life uh, has there ever been any fear or doubt around being self-supported and doing your own thing um, I can live on very little I lived on less than 10,000 a year for 15 20 years wow yeah you don't need much money I mean I was lucky I'd bought a house for $27,000 35 <laughs> years ridiculous. ago on an acre of where land. Where was that? It's just where I am now. Really? It's, yeah, it's so now. South Hobart, South for Hobart. those who were listening, it's which is now probably the most prestigious suburb uh, in Hobart. 15 minutes in GPO, acre of land, creek frontage, north facing, you know, 27000 it's crazy. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I was lucky uh, in things like that. Um, but, you know, it's... A pretty small little house, but it's it's okay. It's a roof over my head, and I can keep warm. Um, and as this, the sacrifice of having very little money for a long time, or you know, the other side of that was that I had immense freedom mm. to follow my instinct, take one step, and follow up the next step. That's incredible because there is currently this huge movement they call minimalism. You know, there are people making squillions of dollars of profit out of this concept of minimalism, of trying to live simpler and you know, decluttering your life and your brain and your relationships and yeah. your work. Yeah. And you were just intuitively, again, yeah. following that because you had to. Basically. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the choice made there. I could have yeah. said, oh, this is not, not acceptable and gone yeah. out and got a job. Um, but especially in the last decade or so. Um, not that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing then, but the last 10 or 15 years I felt more directed, more uh, that I'm growing more strongly in the last, and I'm now what, almost 60, in the last decade and a bit, I've grown more than I certainly was for large periods of my life before. Grown in what way, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, just as a person, mm-hmm. uh, just being more quiet within myself or more. Quiet's not really the right word. Um, reflective. Mm-hmm. Cultivating intuition. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. How, how do you do that? I, I only ask because... More and more I'm living by this sort of concept of an intuition as well. I don't really know where my life's going. I just have this deep, almost like a restlessness in me that I feel like I just want to contribute. And I don't even know what sphere I'm contributing yet, but I I feel very driven by, and not driven, very inspired by the Tasmanian landscape. But I also feel very strongly people's um, discomfort 
and health and well-being so working in that sector so how do you how do you go about intuition do you formally do any mindfulness meditation focus on spirituality health exercise or all of the above (laughs) all of of the above um i think that before i talk about my uh, where I'm at with that, I think that as a society, there's this imperceptible um, rising of intuition and self-awareness mm. and, and, and sense of spirituality uh, among individuals. I think it's happening. It's part of our evolution. I completely agree. And thank goodness that is, because on the other side of that, we've got Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back to my own feelings... Uh, Uh, meditation is really, really central to, I think, we as people, mm. we as human beings. Uh, for me, I, it's, I fell into that as well. When I first came down to Tassie, uh, I'd known I had a friend in, uh, when I was at uni who had since moved down to Tassie. When I came down, I stayed with her and her husband, and in the period that she was down here after leaving uni, she um, started doing meditation and sort of through then... One thing led to another and I started doing meditation. So it's now 40-odd 40, 40 years that I've been practising meditation. Um, and meditation, another word for that is intuitional science. And so that's where it mm. engages with, uh, you know, your own sense of intuition. Um, the medita- a meditation practice, and certainly for me I can feel it you know, day to day, when I meditate, it makes me feel different mm-hmm. and it makes me, uh, during meditation, sort of as a byproduct and also as a bit of a distraction, actually. It's not really what you should be doing meditation, <laughs> but during meditation, but <clears throat> as a byproduct and, and a distraction, often I'll, I'll get clarity. I'll just be mulling over something when I'm supposed to be meditating. And, <laughs> but it does change how you are. Yeah. Um, and... I'll see clearly what I should be doing and, yes, I should do that or, no, I shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the meditation practice itself (coughs) is, again, for me, and it's probably different for everyone, but it's really engaging with that, the innermost part of yourself. Mm. Um, And I was thinking about this earlier today. If you say the sentence, I know that I exist, it's the I of I know which is the part that you're engaging with during meditation when meditation is working. So if I say, I know that I exist, perhaps the I of the I exist is you know, my physical body, uh, perception, a sense of myself as I'm walking around. But the I know, the I, of, the I know that I exist is that core, that essence of myself, which is, it is my body, but not my body. It's more than my body. It's mm. my, my brain, but it's, you know, it's, that, it's me. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Go for it. <coughs> we uh, recently were fortunate enough to be able to sit down with Clive Stack, who uh, is studying the human emotions and emotional intelligence. And later on in the discussion, he talked about this concept of needing to sit in the space of vulnerability. You know, and I guess in some ways it's kind of what you're also talking about by intuition is that sometimes 
you don't you don't know what the next step is mm. and you have to just kind of sit in that space mm. until the right thing comes it's not mm. something we can force and i think the modern world is very has led us for quite a long while down the lines of planning and sitting and working it out and and i'm finding it, it it's so hard it's so hard to sit in a in a point of vulnerability but I think that's kind of also what you're saying at the moment is that mm. if you're quiet enough in your mind, you can wait till you kind of find that next step. Mm. It's not something that you force per se. Is that mm. correct? Yeah, and I, I like that phrase, the point of vulnerability, because it's also another way of saying that is surrender. Mm. Um, and that's what we and I find so hard in this society and most of people. Um, but it's integral to surrender is integral to meditation practices and, and enhancing or becoming aware of your spiritual sen- uh, self. Mm. A useful uh, thought to um, to help us move into that space of vulnerability or surrender is. Uh, it's a sense of I am alone, I am by myself. Mm. Because we are so much impacted by the thought of how other people will see us, perceive us. And if you can place yourself in a mental space where you're conscious that or reminding yourself that you are now completely alone, there is no one for this period of time in this space, I am now completely alone. <laughs> I can let go and set aside all of the expectations that other people have of me or the fears that I have about what other people may think. And in that space, it frees you up to engaging with what you most want to be doing at that (laughs) point in time. Oh, my God, I love that. (laughs) Hanny, listen, that is such an important (laughs) lesson for me. Yeah, it just actually just two days ago I had an email from... A girl that I used to coach in New Zealand, who I now am actually again coaching, she's 15. She's a super talent. But at 15, she'd come to the realisation that she was doing everything for the wrong reasons, that she was out there trying to please people and, surprise, surprise, it was stunting her performance, making her incredibly sad. I wouldn't go as far as depressed, but Mm. she knew that she wasn't happy. And she had to change things around. So for, for a 15-year-old, you know, the lesson's there as, a, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I bump into you a little bit out running on the trails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you, is that something you enjoy? Uh, yeah. And also I'm, I'm also going to ask you about nutrition because it's, well, I think it, exercise and nutrition are two things that can either it's sort of like smoke and mirrors, you know, they can either help you to find yourself or they can mask what you're truly feeling by poor, say, nutrition or poor exercise habits. Can you can you talk me a bit about what you think in that sphere? Yeah, no, both things are, as you know well, Hanny, intimately related, exercise and nutrition. And both can be the most uplifting uh, experiences, well, not the most, but incredibly uplifting mm. in how we are. Um, exercise, obviously. And, well, exercise, in the last few years, I got into athletics, um, 
after having been a runner for 45 years, hmm. um, but more just, you know, running bush tracks and so on. But the beauty of athletics is that um, you don't have to worry about where you're putting your feet. Yeah. And you can, especially, so I'm talking short-distance athletics, sprints, you can really go for it because you know it's going to be over in one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. And so unlike a longer run, you pace yourself. But for a shorter sprint, you just open up and go and let your body move as fast as it can and without, you know, and you're, it's over before the pain really hits. Yeah. Um, and that can be, that's just beautiful because it's like you open up and allow yourself to run rather than push yourself to run. It's two very different ways of, uh, of approaching yeah. mentally how you, you run. I never, I never knew you were involved in the athletic scene. <laughs> That's cool. No, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I like, you know, once you get you there on the track and you know, you're, at, you're at the blocks, it's, um, you know, there's <laughs> tension like crazy. <laughs> um, and so I actually prefer, I enjoy the training more than I do the actual right. races. Yeah, but without I... the races, they're the thing that pull you towards uh, opening yourself, yourself up more and extending yourself. So they're the invitation, they're the, they're the hook, that uh, the impetus to extend yourself more in your training. Oh, I'm listening to that one <laughs> as well. <laughs> as I sit here and grapple with the decisions of whether to keep racing or not. Yeah. Interesting, Rob. And what about nutrition? Nutrition, nutrition can be um, make you make your default, you know, how you feel as a default. Um, I'm not saying this well. Nutrition can be can make you feel all the. No, as a base, um, wonderful. Mm. And that's what nutrition should lead towards. It shouldn't be... You shouldn't just be feeling okay. If, you've, if you're eating well, um, when nothing else is going on, you'll just feel wonderful. <laughs> and that's how it can be at its oh, best. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> vitality. Yeah. It's become yeah. my kind of catchphrase. Yeah. Yeah. Eating for vitality. Do you follow one school of thought with nutrition or is it all self-exploration? It's self-exploration, so I don't follow schools, but I, I read a lot and I, you know, different periods I've read a lot. But ultimately, my, my, what I feel is that, you know, our body is the laboratory. <laughs> the duration of the experiment is a lifetime. <laughs> and we are the ones, you know, our mind is the ones conducting the experiment. So I think everyone has different needs. For me, raw foods is the key. Simple mm-hmm. as that. Raw whole foods of a variety. I think we, we had this conversation before once, I remember. Uh, a variety, um, a kaleidoscope of colours, um, a rainbow of colours. Raw whole foods, simple as that. Preferably um, from your garden. Preferably from the garden. <laughs> uh, the you know, 100% raw diet is... It's a very pinnacle diet. It's not an easy one to follow, but mm. the rewards are extraordinary. It's not for everyone, I don't think. Um, but just a diet which is high in whole organic raw foods, you know, 80%, 90%. And then the balance of that should be um, protein and you know, whole grains and, and uh, beans. So through that, you sort of get you know, the cosy warmth of... Um, rice, you know, brown rice and beans or whatever, 
and then next to that is giant pile of you know fresh <laughs> parsley which you just wolf down oh it's yeah, just wonderful it's and it makes you feel so good i mean that's it, it's so rewarding oh, i it's i've been a i've been slow on the uptake i i was told by this guy clive stack actually he he does a lot with birth dates which is really interesting so he, he plugs in your your birth date and he crunches all these numbers and he comes out and he goes you're a curious creature, aren't you? And he goes, I can hear that you're super curious to try things, but you're really slow to, like, um, to connect with it or to trust to trust something. And he was, yeah, he was reading me like a book. But it was the same with nutrition. It's been, you know, I read, I, I love to learn, but I, I couldn't quite make this jump to just trust my intuition and, and run with it and more recently I have with a plant-based diet predominantly raw mm. not completely but mm. predominantly raw and it it, it is life-changing and what I'm also really fascinated by is its ability to heal mm. yeah I work a lot with people who've experienced trauma and I I really do believe that it, it has an ability to heal. Would you agree to, mm. or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Certainly at a physical level. Like yes, I, on a physical level. I have gone for decade or a decade without having a cold. Um, and probably with a couple of exceptions for various reasons. Um, that I mean, that correlates precisely with my taking up raw foods. Yeah, amazing. Right. It's extraordinary, just the health benefits uh, to your immune system. Mm. Really interesting, Rob. Thanks for sharing that with us. So would you mind if we now jump to a completely different topic um, and talk about the Tarkine? Uh, I think that's kind of where you and I started to really connect and, mm. and speak the same language was when you sat down back in when we first opened our small that's find right. your feet store. Yeah. Yeah. We set up an evening for you to do a slideshow on the Tarkine and sadly you only had half a dozen, well, no, about a dozen people. I think there were about 12 of us. But you you changed my life, I think, at that moment. So... Again, just from the research I've done, you first connected to the Tarkine in about 1990 on a visit there. Is that about correct Yeah, I can't remember the years, but it may have been a little before then. But right. Was, yeah. yeah. What was it about the Tarkine? You know, what it, you, you're still so involved in it, so it, it obviously has a huge impact on your life. There's just this massive area, and it's accessible, but a massive area of... It's the forest which excites me most, although, you know, I love the coast as well. But the forest is... Australia's biggest rainforest wilderness, St. Mm. Bob, end of story. Mm. And it's through that rainforest wilderness flow a number of rivers, and many of them are raftable. And so why not go out and raft them all? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a corridor. You know, it's, it's not always easy, and some are easier than others, but it's a corridor through this incredible, massive, vibrant, beautiful rainforest. Mm. And it was in, I think, just 2013 that the National Heritage Council put forward a suggestion that the whole area of the Tarkine, which for those people who don't know where it is, is in the northwest region of Tasmania, west-northwest region of Tasmania. It extends a long way inland, so it covers the tall forest, the button grass plains, and then the coastal strip, which the coastal strip itself, and I'm sure then also the forest has huge Aboriginal significance. Mm. So they were, they were suggesting that the whole area should be protected. Mm. And it's my understanding that only about 5% mm. 
is actually protected after that suggestion, mm. and that's mm. the coastal strip. Mm. What does that mean for the Tarkine now? Well, the extraordinary thing about the Tarkine is that the default outcome for that on current government policy in land tenure is that it's all 95% is available for logging. Um, it's a narrow strip, which is not national park, but is uh, national estate listed down the coast uh, to protect Aboriginal heritage. And there's the Savage River National Park, which covers a part of the that large rainforest in the interior, but the rest is uh, open for mining particularly, some of it's open for logging. And so, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing. This amazing place has as its default outcome uh, exploitation for, for brutal exploitation for resources, mm. you know, wood or, or mines. Um, and that's so patently ridiculous uh, that it's not going to happen. Um, I think that exponentially love and love and awareness of the, goes the other way really, awareness experience and love of the Tarkine is growing and that's what will save it but it's you know parts will be lost along the way and there's no clear mechanism for that protection to happen mm. but you know it must happen because you know it's it's Again, I come back to what's Australia's biggest rainforest wilderness. Mm. That's that's the reason for its protection. And that rainforest wilderness is attached to one step towards the coast to a line, north-south line of, of ranges, of low mountains. And then you, the next step across, you're at the coast in a wild wilderness, pristine, or not pristine, but a wilderness coast, mm. which in itself, as an experience to, to visit, is fantastic, like to walk up that coast. In the last year or two, there's been a ban on four-wheel drives running down that coast. And that single you know, protection, excluding the four-wheel drives, makes it a wilderness coast from being a coast which has been degraded very swiftly by four-wheel driving and the things that come with four-wheel driving. I still remember you talking about four-wheel drives using the the Aboriginal dune middens as like speed speed bumps <laughs> as, mm. as jump ramp, ju- jump ramps as well mm. I, yeah so what would it what would it take for that area to become is is it out of the realms of possibility for that area to become a wilderness world heritage area no not at all and it's absolutely worthy of that right um, if you look at the other world heritage areas in Tasmania, you know, extraordinary as they are, the Tarkin is absolutely on a par with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a, and for the same reasons, its natural values and its cultural values. The coast, because there was such a, a concentration of Aboriginal people on the coast, that is a huge part of its identity. And it's important for everyone. It's particularly important, obviously, for the Aboriginal community today's Aboriginal community in Australia, in Tasmania mm-hmm. um, because that was a real heartland of where their ancestors lived and their ancestors changed and shaped that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that reason, yeah, and it was, it was absolutely, the coast particularly was absolutely a cultural, like it was people living within wild nature and so you've got the two two forces the nature and you know human mm. life uh, 
working together and working in the same space and the outcome being a human-shaped landscape where the natural elements are still really, really powerful. Mm. They're not destroyed by any means, which is obviously what does happen in modern-day society because our capacity for, for destroying environments is so great. And especially with the development of technology yeah. <laughs> over time. Yeah. So what projects are you working on in the region at the moment? Uh, nothing explicit. More in the last six months I've, again, stumbled onto uh, wildlife photography, having sort of mm-hmm. done landscape photography, photography for decades. Um, for whatever reason, again, it wasn't sought, but I've picked up a long lens and gone out chasing birds or, you know, admiring birds, particularly wetland and, and ocean birds. And so in a, in a month or so, I'll assume as the March fly season has subsided a bit in the Tarkine, um, I'll do a trip up the coast with a long lens with the aim, or a long lens and, and landscape gear, mm-hmm. with the aim of uh, complementing landscape imagery with images of threatened little <laughs> balls of feather and fur, <laughs> feather and... <laughs> Whatever. The hooded plovers. Down on the, oh, yeah, hooded, hooded plovers and yeah. things like that, endangered, you know, threatened and rare birds which um, frequent that coast and which are directly threatened by four-wheel driving. Yeah. So how can how can people listening to this podcast engage with the Tarkine? What what ways can we help to I guess, take it one step closer to being a protected area. Yeah, so I'm going to take that question wider to start with. <laughs> you <do that. laughs> um, uh, You know, how can we as people help the planet? Mm. Um, and I think there's two levels. One is the practical things that we can do, engagement with political processes, changing our lifestyles, etc. And the other is harking back to what we talked about a bit earlier in the conversation, changing ourselves at a spiritual level. Mm. And... I think that I think that the only way, if if you look at the planet as it is right now, and you look at it in a rational, logical sense, you know we're stuffed, we're doomed. This, the the forces of destruction are so strong; they're not diminishing at this point. Um, and you know we'll battle, we'll fight against them all the way. But you know it's just not realistic. It's the trajectory is is so clear and so powerful and so quick now against the well-being of the planet and its people and its other inhabitants that at an objective level, you know, know, the world is stuffed. Um, I think the only thing that will save it, and it's a bit hard again to express this, but I think it's this change of consciousness which we talked about before. I think there is through the efforts of people, of individual people and, soci- and groups of people and societies to progress themselves in a psychic and a spiritual level. Um, again, th- th- that, that trend, that direction uh, is, is our wild card. Mm. Um, and I can't look forward and see how that specifically will, will help the planet get through or help humanity get through, help the rest of the inhabitants of the planet get through. But I, that has to be the two things, practical 
activism, practical changes to our life, you know, people battling against exploitation, greed, um, that goes hand in hand with people, people changing, mm. people changing. It's funny because it was, it was on our trip, so when we were up in the wilderness together with Dan Brown, another quite, you know, sort of an up-and-coming photographer for the Tasmanian landscape, we were walking along, I don't, I don't remember where you were, I think you were out with the pencil pines, and I was having a bit of a meltdown moment because I, I could really feel that everything we were seeing was directly to do with climate change and human mm. impact. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, was a huge wake-up call. And I remember you, even before this moment, saying to me, this is not just a problem for our children, like it's always been stated. It's a problem for us. And I think that really hit home to me. So I was having this little meltdown moment with Dan and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Han, at some point we have to believe that there are all these amazing people out there doing their best and doing really wonderful things and eventually we will all come together. And I think it was at that moment when I think it really, really connected to me what intuitively I needed to do was just do my best, whatever that is, still working it out, but knowing that, it's part of a bigger picture. And I think that's kind of maybe one of the benefits of if you try to look at the silver lining of the Trump outcome at the moment is that I think it will really generate a groundswell of people going, well, if I can't rely on the government, I've got to rely on myself and those people around me. And I think it will help breed a new life force coming through. So I, I kind of I think I hear what you're saying is that work on yourself, work on what you can do and try to sort of be part of the bigger picture. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. yeah. Hmm. Um, so in, in all of what you've done, what do you think has been one of your greatest successes? As a person, as a photographer, as someone on the planet? Yeah, no, I don't really think like that. Hmm. Um, you know, I guess I've spoken about, you know, I'm really happy that I've landed regarding, you know, I love running. I'm really happy where I've landed regarding nutrition, although it's a lifetime study. Um, I'm happy with where I'm exploring spiritually through meditation. Mm. And I think that a specific practice of meditation, um, and I think different practices suit different people, but I think to have... Uh, a routine, a practice, an engagement, a specific set of tools that you can use uh, is critical to us rapidly or relatively rapidly developing our spiritual uh, identity. Mm. I mean, it happens just as we move through life, but to have a set of specific practice it increases the speed of that, mm. in my belief. Um, yeah, and I, I'm enjoying photography. Um, so I guess I'm not really... My mind is not thinking about particular achievements, but more just, you know, the most important point in one's life is right here and now. And where you're moving forward um, on the different fronts of your life mm. and how you're doing that. I mean, that said, there's a few, you know, say photographically there's couple of I'm just thinking one, of one image in particular which um, I really really like <laughs> <laughs> I like it because 
it was a bit unexpected. It, um, it's an aerial shot of the World Valley, and I guess I, I like it because the World Valley was a big part of my life for many, many years. Uh, campaigning for that, it was a, a campaign focus of, of mine, along with many other people, for a long time. And this one picture, which was a snapshot, um, deep forest, midwinter, Mount Anne behind, covered in snow, just <laughs> lovely, lovely scene, epitomising the best of Tasmania. <laughs> just a snapshot. Would you mind if we shared that on the show notes for people to to look at? If I can find it, yeah. I, I was looking for it the other day. I probably got. I, mean, I think I've got it as a training. But I don't know if I've even got it as a scanned image, but I'll have a look. That would be wonderful. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and just maybe into conclusion now, uh, you've recently started some wilderness. Or sorry, I'm going to rephrase that. Some photography workshops for people. So starting to to look at teaching some of what you've learnt over the years. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a nice process. Um, and again, over a period of a few days, you can be with people and normally photography or landscape movements photography is a, is a solo mm. occupation because you, know, you, you have to follow A, your intuition and B, you know, all of your learning of the two, or intuition and your previous learning are all obviously very closely related, but you have to follow uh, the season and the time and your availability to go out and take pictures do you mind, sorry if I interrupt, but ask, do you know how many days of a year you might be out in a landscape on your own? It varies a lot. Um, some years it's 30 or 40, and other years it's been much more than that. Really? Yeah. yeah. So a lot. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. I'm <laughs> curious. Um, where was I going? Sorry, ask me that working again. with um, oh, okay. teaching Groups. people. Yeah. Mm. So by and large, you tend to be by yourself. Um, but when you do grab with a group of people who are like-minded, or well, the other reason one goes out by oneself is that if you're taking your picture and you're sort of in that space, it drives anyone else who's with you totally crazy, <laughs> unless they have got something that they are also engaged with, such as writing or painting or photography. But it simply doesn't work to seriously engage with photography as part of a group and you're the only one doing it doesn't work mm. unless you're based in the same place and you can wander out by yourself. So when you do a workshop with people, uh, you fairly quickly move into us and everyone's motivated and, and pointed in the same direction. You move into a space where everyone's just happy and as a guide, sure, you'll be, uh, you know, wandering up to people and saying, how are you going, you know, what's this or that or, you know, discussing things. And But for large slabs of the workshop, everyone is wandering off by themselves within you know, a short distance of each other and that's lovely you come back and you you share what you've seen you know in terms of the images that you've taken but also things you found and what you liked and didn't like so you're connected by your craft yeah yeah, yeah. and you're in a, a wild and natural landscape and that's in itself uplifting mm. yeah. we find that on our running tours yeah. We have people from all walks of life, all demographics. In Japan, we even had uh, a, a younger male who was first year out of school and he'd been saving his entire mm. high school years to come on a running... Well, yeah. to, to go on an adventure and he chose a running tour with us. So we had him at, I think he was 18, <coughs> 17, 18, and at the other end of the spectrum, like 65-year-olds from upper-class Sydney, New South Wales. And yet we all connected 
And I think it's connected by craft, yeah. connected by landscape. And yeah. it's amazing how, yeah, all barriers break down, especially by yeah. day three. Yeah. You're really in the groove. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you got more photography workshops that people can engage with coming up? I've got one in the Tarkai and Cradle coming Ooh. up in a couple of months. I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't keep up with you, Henny. <laughs> I couldn't um, keep up with you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe how fast you walked. <laughs> Uh, and then in early May, we've got one on the Bay of Fire, so totally different, opposite side of Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um, both are fantastic. We've done both of them before. Um, both wonderful in their different ways. Um, and then towards the end of the year, we've got another wildlife photography workshop down on the peninsula. Interesting. So I've got three scheduled for this fantastic. year. Fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. So we will, um, can we link people to your website or the Wild Island? The Wild Island, Wild Island Gallery. Great, yeah. And Wild Island, just to just quickly clarify that, that is a project that you and others started mm. to create a place where you could exhibit your own work plus other people's or other artists' work. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's a shopping gallery down at Salamanca, which is a tourist precinct in Hobart. Mm-hmm. And the reason for being is to celebrate nature, wild nature in Tasmania, simple mm-hmm. as that. Um, and we try and do that in any way that we can think of. So obviously through nature-based, you know, retail products, um, through running workshops, through having talks, through exhibitions mm-hmm. of photography. But much more than photography, we've had um, weavings, painting, obviously, three D objects, uh, just you know things which celebrate nature mm-hmm. and natural, natural experiences. Yeah. Rob, thank you so much for your time, for sitting on the point of vulnerability and sharing, sharing what drives you, which the learning for me today was to listen to your intuition or to try to, to find, to try and find space to, to hear your intuition Mm. talking to you. Mm. I think it's a really good lesson for all of us, no matter what, Mm. what we're following. Um, and I, I definitely came away so inspired by our trip a year ago. I hope we can replicate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Work on another small project together. To a place without burnt pencil pines would be even better. I would really love that. <laughs> it was actually my birthday night, Rob, right, sleeping on this charred ground. Yeah. I remember there wasn't a breath of wind. Well, there must have been because you could just hear this soot hitting the edge of the tent yeah. all night. It, it, it shook me in ways that I didn't expect. Um, but in, I think, a good way, ultimately. And we created a film together, which yeah. was really beautiful, which yeah. we will add to the show notes. I hope the Tarkine is one of the projects that we can... or a place that we can go yeah. together at some yeah. place. Yeah. I know that you know some secret goodies <laughs> in there that I want to see as well. Lots of secret goodies. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much, Rob, for your Thanks, time honey. today. Thank you.